Good morning. You guys doing well? Sounds like you are. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Hey, I'm still flying high for the last two weekends. Last weekend, I had a new grandson born into this world and then had another one this weekend. Back-to-back weekends. Uh, Last weekend, it was Russ and Kim and their little guy, his name, that's their second uh, boy, and his name is Killian Patrick Davis. Ooh, don't mess with him. And uh, this weekend it was uh, Ryan and Aaron and their little guy. This is their fourth boy, and his name is, uh, is Nolan Ryan Davis. So the, the verse, I'll tell you what, uh, Psalm 139, verse 14. Man, it's just loud and clear to me. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. As I've been able to hold each one of these little guys, just blown away at the beauty and the majesty of God and in creation. And uh, it's, it's awesome. Good to, good to be here this morning. Good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah. We've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah. We're in the fifth chapter. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. This is our Rebuild Teaching Series, and guess what we're going to talk about this morning? Conflict. Oh, goody, you guys don't sound too excited. I wonder why. Uh, So we're going to talk about conflict, and what I want to do is start off by asking you a question, kind of do a little bit of a kind of self-evaluation, and uh, I want to ask you two questions. First of all, how did your family handle conflict growing up? As you grew up, how did your family, family of origin, handle conflict? Now, the reason why that's an important question is because uh, similar to some birds and fish, we have a homing instinct. We tend to go back to that which is most familiar to us, even if it's dysfunctional. But then if we recognize, well, that's a pretty messed up way to deal with conflict, typically we, we overreact and overcorrect and it it messes us up too and so think about your family of origin how did your family of origin deal with conflict and then here's my question for you what characterizes your approach to conflict i'm going to give you four choices here let me run through the four choices and then i'll have you raise your hand based on which one best represents you so what characterizes your approach to conflict letter a a avoid at all cost B, I can face it, but I don't like it. C, a good argument every once in a while clears the air. And then D, I do conflict recreationally. (laughs) Okay, real quick, survey, show of hands. Who would say that yours is A, avoid at all cost? Okay, okay. How about B, I can face it, but I don't like it. Wow, there's more of you there. Okay, so here's what's interesting about this is that 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 would be more passive aggression. We're going to talk about that, but that's more passive aggression. The next two questions are those that are open in their aggression. And so the next one, letter C, a good argument every once in a while clears the air. Show of hands. Show of hands, okay. And then this last one, letter D, I do conflict recreationally. Okay, keep your hands up. Those of you that uh, believe that, stay away from these folks, okay? Okay, so that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. We're going to get into that. That's, it's important. If you're going to understand conflict resolution, you've got to understand anger and how you deal with your own anger. And so relational conflict is inevitable. 
Are you guys cool with that? You're going to get close to somebody. You're going to have some relational conflict, but don't run from it because relational conflict gives opportunity for greater levels of intimacy and maturity. So it can work really uh, positive, uh, positively in your life if you don't run from it. Typically, we respond to it inappropriately uh, through open or closed aggression or passive aggression, and, and so we've got to learn how to respond to it, but if we learn to respond to it appropriately, it can create greater levels of intimacy with each other and maturity, and not only with each other, but also with God. It helps us to grow up. Uh, your conflict resolution skills reveal your spiritual maturity. In fact, so we've been talking about rebuilding and talking about wholeness here, and so it also reveals, your conflict resolution skills reveals your uh, level of wholeness, how you're getting healthy and how you're able to respond to the people in your life. So it reveals that. So it reveals uh, your personal wholeness, but also your spiritual maturity. Uh, here's the next statement. It's a pretty important statement as it relates to relationships. The extent to which two people in a relationship can bring up and resolve issues is an important sign of relational health. So you know that you're healthy relationally in a relationship when you can bring up and resolve those issues and work on those issues. So that's our path. That's where we're headed this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And then we'll dive into our text and unpack these notes. Father God, you made this world a perfect home, but we ran from you and broke your heart and this world. But you didn't just look down at the mess we made. In your love, you came down through your son, not as a judge, but as a rescuer, to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died, to reconcile us to the Father, and to give us the ministry of reconciliation. Teach us what that means. Transform our lives through the study of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. So let's take a look at this text. Let me bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us through the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is the memoirs of Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer. He had been exiled. Actually, uh, he probably was born in this region because it was 140 years earlier, the nation of Israel had been conquered and then scattered throughout the ancient world, many of them exiled into other regions of the land. And and he was born probably within a, a family that that happened to. And so... There had been two attempts for people to return back to the, the land of Israel and to their homeland to rebuild. They'd been unsuccessful. Nehemiah heard word of that, was brokenhearted. And so the king has allowed him to go back and start rebuilding the, the walls of Jerusalem. And so when you think of rebuilding, it, it's a picture, this Old Testament picture of a New Testament principle of God. When we encounter God and we get to know him and we walk with him, he's in the process of rebuilding our brokenness if we will give him all the pieces of our lives. It's also a picture of them returning to this land of milk and honey. It's a picture of us living life to its fullest through Jesus Christ. Not a better life on this planet earth than a life that that comes as a result of of knowing Christ, walking with Christ, enjoying Christ. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the what? Fullest, yeah. There's a quantity of life. There's a quality of life, unlike anything you could ever experience. And it comes uh, through Jesus Christ. And so this is what it's giving us a picture of. 
And, and so we saw last week that if, and we're going to see this week, so last week it was more about opposition, this week's more about conflict. If Satan can't get you from the outside, that's chapter 4, what we looked at, opposition, he'll work on the inside, chapter 5. He'll, he'll work to divide and conquer. So if he can't bring Desert Breeze down from opposition from the outside, he will stir up problems on the inside within our relationships. That's the picture that we have in chapter 5. Mark 3.25 tells us that a house divided against itself cannot what? It cannot stand. So if he can't get you from the outside, he's going to come on the inside. He's going to get you through your wife, your spouse, your family, your kids, your parents. He's going to get you that way, one, one way or the other. And so we're going to see in this story the conflict, the internal strife that they have, and we're going to get a chance to see how Nehemiah resolves it. We're going to learn some good lessons on conflict resolution. We're going to look at the cause of conflict and then the cure for conflict. Let me read. I'll try not to comment too much as we read through this. 13 verses, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So we've got this internal conflict. This is going to describe a little bit of what's going down. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said... We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. There's the problem. There's the internal conflict. Here's Nehemiah's response, verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his own brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought, notice what he says here, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. So, man, we have bought them out of slavery, but you, we are enslaving them, as he says here. What you even sell, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So we've bought them out of slavery, bringing them back here to, to bring liberty and freedom to them, but we're enslaving them. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said... Now he gets to the root of the problem here. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? He's saying we're not any different than any other people in this land. There should be a distinctiveness to our lives because of our fear and interaction with God. Verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, now this is their response to Nehemiah. So he's confronted them over these issues. And they say, 
We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord to us. So two questions, or two, two basic uh, thoughts here. The cause of conflict, and then we'll look at the cure for conflict. First of all, the cause, verse 1, we see there arose a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. And then in verse, the four complaints, verse 2, food shortages, says a famine. Verse 3, over-mortgaged homes. Verse 4, high taxes. And these are people taxing one another. And then verse 5, forced slavery. It's called indentured servitude. Which is interesting is that, so if you owed someone and you're indebted to someone, you'd have to have your, your family members go and serve them until the debt was finished. It's a form of slavery. Here's what I've learned in, in dealing with conflict, even dealing with conflict within my own life, my own marriage, my own home, and then helping others with their conflict. The external problem is rarely the real problem. So these are the external problems. These are the fruit of a much deeper root. So anytime you're dealing with conflict, that's the first thing you have to think. Okay, what is this? This is, is are these the symptoms of something that much deeper? What are the, the deeper issues here? Oftentimes we kind of dance around the symptoms or the fruit and never get down to the root. And all human problems are symptoms, the fruit, of our separation from God, root. So all of our problems are really uh, fruit, symptoms of our separation from God, root. The root issue is always goes back to God. Uh, Desert Breeze, we take couples through a, a, a prepare and rich program. It's 167 question inventory. Takes them through all kinds of issues and things. And, um, and when we take them through this, it deals with all the way from communication, conflict resolution, financial management, roles, leisure activities, parenting, friends, all these things like that. And all of that is actually fruit... And the much deeper issue is always root. Because if you were to come to me and you had conflict and you said, we just, we, we're having some disputes over uh, managing our finances, I would always take you back to the root. The root typically is going to be your disconnectedness with God and understanding that. And that's always important to keep that in mind. Here's the real problem. Here's the root of our issues, self-centeredness. That's your first fill in the blank on the notes. And let me read to you. And, and the Bible makes this very clear. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Let me read those verses to you. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Okay, so, so he's talking about fruit. Here's the fruit. So what's the root? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So there's the root. Your passions are at war with you. So you have these desires, you're not getting your needs met. And then he goes on and he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He's saying, you don't go to God. He's the source. You need to go to him. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So even when you go to God, it's all for selfish reasons. You're not going to God uh, to be with him. You're going to get from him. You're even using God in all of this because it's all about you. It's self-centeredness that's driving your life. 
He goes on and he calls them, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. So what is he saying? He's saying conflict comes from our idolatrous, adulterous desires and demands. We're telling ourselves, I can't live without this. and, And you happen to be getting in the way of me having what I most want. And, uh, and so this idolatry or adulterous, he calls it an adulterous desire, is, it's just loving anything more than you love God. He says that's the root of our issues. Now, let's unpack that. I've got three statements here to, to kind of help you to go through that. But before I do that, you'll notice I put a number of verses, what God said about um, how we are to treat one another within the family of God and how the nation of Israel were to treat one another. Exodus twenty two twenty five, Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, Leviticus 25, 35 through 37, talks about the Old Testament, how we were to treat one another. John 13, 34 and 35, you're probably familiar with that. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. By your love for one another. This is how people will know is how you treat one another. And then Acts 2, 42 through 47, we see how they treated one another. And then also in Acts 4, 32 through 37. Here's, here's the idea. This is all he's, he's getting at, is that, man, if you have any idea how much God loves you, and you're living in the reality of God's love, that you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. So you're going to naturally love your neighbor as yourself. You're, you're going to be as concerned with your neighbor's needs. You're going to give the same amount of thought, feeling, and action to your neighbor's needs as you have given to your own needs because your heart is so captivated and driven by the love of God for you. That's, that's the point. That's the idea. And that's not what is happening here in Nehemiah's story. And that's what he's calling them on. So here's your three statements as it relates to this real problem, self-centeredness, the root cause of interpersonal conflict and discord is always personal conflict. So my interpersonal, my conflict with you, our interaction is always because of personal conflict, me, personal conflict, conflict going on inside of me, my self-centeredness, my, my self-absorption. And the reason why I'm self-absorbed is because I'm disconnected from the source of my completeness and contentment. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul says some pretty interesting things here. He says here, he goes through this whole list. I mean, it's just a fabulous list of, of stuff that we have in Jesus Christ. He says, man, since you, he uses the word if, but, it, but basically it means since. Since you have these things, since you have encouragement from Christ, and since you have comfort from his love and participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And then he goes on and says, I mean, if you have this in Jesus, I mean, wouldn't you want to uh, live your life in such a way where there's a unity and harmony? Uh, horizontally? Yeah, absolutely. That's what he's getting at. And then he goes on, and then in verse uh, 3 of this text, he says this, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. The word rivalry means just, uh, rivalry means uh, just competitiveness, like trying to one-up someone else. Like I want more than what they've got. But then he uses this word conceit, and the word conceit means, in the Greek it means vainglory. 
He says, you will be empty of glory. Glory is the word that means weight, significance, importance. In other words, you're just, you're empty on the inside. You're discontent. Because otherwise, man, if you understood the encouragement from Christ and comfort of his love and participation in the spirit and the affection and sympathy that he brings you, oh my goodness, the glory of that is heavy, it's weighty, it's significant, and you're not going to be empty of glory. Because we're vain glory, we're empty of glory, we begin to look to fill that need within us. We become preoccupied. We become self-centered. We become self-absorbed, which, by the way, is fundamentally what's wrong with us, and that's the natural sinful nature because we're disconnected from God. Obviously, I've got to begin to look out for me. But if I'm connected with him, he looks out for me. I'm content in him. I'm complete in him. And so it always goes back to that. That's the root, the root cause, the root issue. The root cause of interpersonal conflict and discord is always personal conflict, self-centered. Here's the next statement. My heart will forever be restless, personal conflict, until I find my rest in God. That's a St. Augustine uh, quote. It's from uh, Confessions. He just says, hey, our hearts will forever be restless until we find our rest in God. Hey, look up here just for a minute. You got to get this, man. Don't just go right through this. This is something that, this is, you're restless. You know you are, unless you're really good at medicating that, and you're chasing after the next big happiness high or the next relationship, or you're saying to yourself, man, if I could just achieve this or have that, or if we could get through this problem or whatever it might be, there's always something on the list. Why aren't you completely content now? Because you have everything in him now. And, uh, and so you'll never, you'll never be at rest until you find your rest in him. You'll always forever be restless until you find your rest in him. And when you are restless, it creates agitation internally. And then that's translated into being agitating in relationships. And we get mad and angry and this person did this and I can't believe they said that. And, uh, I mean, can you see it just, and so, so it's this vertical relationship. If that's in harmony, then we're going to have greater harmony worked out in our lives horizontally. Philippians 3, 7 through 11, Paul goes through this whole list of accolades and accomplishments and achievements. And they're pretty profound when you look at what this guy did. And yet, you know what he says? You know what he calls all of that? He says it's, he uses almost kind of profanity because he just says it's, it's dung. It's crap compared to, so he just says, he says it's worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Jesus. Oh yeah, I had all these accomplishments. Oh yeah, I had this big house, I had this big car, I had this, I accomplished this, look at all these trophies, look at all these accomplishments, look at all these awards, look at, he goes, are you kidding? (laughs) That's nothing. That's nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's the Christian life. And then in uh, Philippians 4, 11 through 13, you guys are familiar with this. Now, Paul's in, in uh, prison. He's in, under house arrest. He's uh, chained to a praetorian guard 24-7. And he says, I've learned to be content. And this is where that popular verse where we put it on placards and we misapply this verse all the time. You, you guys are familiar with this. I can do all things through who? Through Christ who does what? Who strengthens me. And we think that we can be, you know, 
I can be an NFL linebacker because of that verse. I can do anything. Not if you're five foot and weigh 110 pounds. You can't. But, uh, I mean, you can say that verse all day long, and, and, that, and that's not going to happen. So it's not based on that. It's about a contentment. It's about even in the worst circumstances, I have Jesus, and that's all I need. I can be content. That's, that's the idea. So there's a contentment, there's a completeness found in, in Jesus. When Christ is our most satisfying reality, now listen to me, when Christ becomes your most satisfying reality, you are free to enjoy everything, unlike you've ever enjoyed everything, because you are no longer enslaved by the gain or loss of anything. See, if you're telling yourself, I have to have this, I can't live without that, You're enslaved by that person or that thing. But when Jesus is your satisfaction, you're going to enjoy those things and and not be so enslaved by those. You can take them or leave them because you have all that you need to satisfy your deepest needs and longings through Jesus Christ. That's the basic gospel message. Here's the next point in your notes. Personal health, wholeness, and, and maturity are at the heart of every relationship that flourishes. So you and I are only, so relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. Would you agree with that? So individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. That's the point. Personal health, wholeness, and maturity are at the heart of every relationship that flourishes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, and he's kind of hammering them a bit here, and he's just saying, hey, listen, Jealousy and strife, you have jealousy and strife among you. You have this conflict among you because it's evident that you are living according to the flesh. In other words, you're you're just self-absorbed, self-centered. Anytime the Bible uses that flesh, it's talking about being being self-absorbed because you're disconnected with God versus a spirit-filled life which is God-centered, God-absorbed. Your life's about Him and His glory. See, you've heard me say this before. If, If I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on my own through Christ. All of my relationships will become an effort to complete myself. All I can bring to those relationships is is neediness. Does that make sense? But if I've come to Christ and I have a sense of completeness in Him, I can bring to that relationship fullness. Turn to the person next to you. Don't yell it out here. If somebody in the first service yelled it out, we had to excommunicate him from the church. And uh, I'm kidding. But... uh, don't yell out, but I mean, let's do a little trivia, Bible trivia. Or not Bible. This is not Bible. I'm sorry. This is movie trivia. Movie trivia. Uh, what movie was it that, and, and, and who was the girl that Tom Cruise said? What was the movie and what was the girl's name that Tom Cruise said in that movie, you complete me? Turn to the person real next to you and find out which one, what it was. Okay, anybody, anybody know what that movie is? Yell it out to me. Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire. Did you guys get that, Jerry Maguire? Okay, who was the gal? Renee Zellweger. Something like that. Okay, got it. And, he's, he, and remember it was that little scene where she's hanging out with all of her girlfriends? He walks in there, you complete me, and all, you know, everybody goes, oh, that's so sweet. That's so jacked up, Okay. I hate to break the news to you. That's messed up. That's not good biblical theology. 
They're codependent. They're messed up. That's a messed up relationship. You complete me. Well, what happens when she dies? I'm incomplete. Exactly. Here's the deal. Nobody, absolutely nobody on this planet Earth can ever complete you. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can complete you. It's only found in him. It will not be found in another person's life or having a relationship or another, you know, whatever. Whatever it is, you will not be complete except through Jesus Christ. Here's a statement. Lonely, insecure people become lonely, insecure, married people. You get that? Now, you can say that to Jesus. You complete me. In fact, that's the Christian life. Thank you, Jesus. You complete me. And certainly my friends and family, they kind of help, but the best help they give me is they keep pointing to you, and they help me to see you more clearly, and they keep kind of pushing me towards you. And Jesus, you're the one that completes me. You're the one that satisfies me. By the way, if you're satisfied in him, you're not going to be led into messed up relationships. That's one of the reasons why people oftentimes have kind of repetitive dysfunction of unhealthy relationships is because they're looking for something to fill that void within them that ultimately only Jesus should fill. And so, so we could actually pretty much end the service right there. Stand with me for closing prayer. And I know we're not going to, okay? Because we got the rest of this. Because I think Nehemiah really gives us some really good insight on how to do conflict resolution. But that's, that's a big one right there. You find your completeness in Jesus Christ. Because the root issue is self-centeredness. And we're self-centeredness only to the degree that we're not finding our completeness in him. And then when I'm captivated by the beauty and the glory of this God of the galaxies that came to this earth and died for me... Oh my goodness, then I'm going to be more concerned about the the needs of people around me. And that's just, that's how that works. Okay, so now, the cure for, for conflict. Number one, this is how you kind of walk through it. So as you kind of work through this, you're walking in this completeness in Christ. That's hard to do, but we, that's why we come to church. We read our Bible, we pray, we get involved in small groups. So out of that completeness now, the cure for conflict, number one, reaction. Admit my anger. Did you notice in verse 6 of our text, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now, how many have found that it is kind of hard to admit your anger? Have you ever said, hey, you're kind of angry, and what, what do people typically say? No, I'm not. It's hard to admit, isn't it? Would you guys agree with that? Show of hands. Okay, there's, there's a lot of us that feel that way. Okay, so it's hard because oftentimes when, when someone would say that to me or I would say that to you, hey, you're angry. I'm not angry. I'm just worried. I'm, I'm not angry, I'm just distressed. I'm not angry, I'm just, I'm standing up for what is right. And I'm going to kill them all. <laughs> Wait a minute, not, that sounds like anger, okay? <laughs> so, so we kind of mask it because we're not really in touch with our own, own anger. And you see, Nehemiah is admitting his anger. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm angry. I'm upset. In fact, we're not even really good at using that. And that's appropriate to be able to say, hey, you know what, I'm really angry right now. And to be able to express that and share that with others. And that's what, what's going on as he, as he writes his memoirs here. Or, I'm, I'm not angry, I'm just, I'm just hurt. Let me take you through some verses that kind of help us to understand anger from a biblical perspective. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 27 through, uh, 26 through 27. You guys are familiar with this. It says, be angry, but what? But don't sin. So it's saying that, that it's part of our emotional makeup. We're created in the image of God. God is... 
There's an aspect of God that he's angry. We should be angry. But he says, so you can be angry and and not sin. So be angry, but don't sin. And then it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What? I really believe one of the easiest ways for the enemy to get into our life is through not dealing with our anger appropriately. And what happens is that it can easily become bitterness. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let me jump to verses 29 through 31 because he gives us in this context a little bit of an understanding of how we know that anger is happening in our life and we're not dealing with it appropriately because verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. It says in Proverbs uh, 18, I think it's 18, you know, maybe 18, chapter 18 or 28 or something like that. But it says, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So that the question would be, how are your words? Are they reckless? They pierce like a sword? Are they more wise words that bring healing to people? That's kind of an indication because our words are a window into our heart. And they tell us how well we're dealing with the anger down deep inside of us. He goes on here and he says, so let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And then he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So we grieve the work of the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then he goes on, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. I mean, even when we talk bad about people, it's evidence of this Anger that hasn't been dealt with appropriately. So slander be put away from you along with malice. Where does murder come from? Malice. Malice in our hearts. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is a big statement that he's making here, the writer. Man, don't miss out on the grace of God. If you miss out on the grace of God, that's crazy. In fact, you can't even say the grace of God without saying amazing. It's amazing grace. Man, you don't want to miss out on the grace of God. Okay, I don't want to miss out on the grace of God. What do I need to be aware of? He goes on. He says, that no root of bitterness. Man, you got a root of bitterness in your heart. You're missing out on the grace of God. Root of bitterness? Yeah, that's unresolved. I've let the sun go down a few too many times, and I've got unresolved issues deep in my heart. And it says it will spring up causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So, you listen to your words. They're a window into your heart. So are you cynical, sarcastic, hateful? How do you respond to conflict? It tells you a lot of what's going on deep in your heart. Charles Swindoll tells the story of having visited a man who had been a POW in World War II, and he hated Asian people. And Charles Swindoll, after reflecting on his meeting with this guy, realized that this guy is more in bondage and in prison now than when he was a POW because of his bitterness and unresolved anger. Bitterness is continually wishing someone harm. It just eats away at you like a cancer. When you are hurt, and you you will get hurt, and you have been hurt, when you get hurt by someone, you have one of two choices. It's either the bondage of bitterness, 
or the freedom of forgiveness. Now, this isn't a message on, on forgiveness, but we'll talk a little bit about it in this. But you really only have one of those two choices, and you need to work through that as it says before the sun sets. Don't stockpile that. St. Augustine once again said, resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. To forgive is to set a captive free and to realize that the captive was me. And it was you. So, that's that. We need to come to terms with, uh, with that. Now, here's, let, let's go back. We have to, once again, so are you, are you open to be able to admit? Now, it was interesting. My wife, my wife tends to be op- uh, closed in her aggression, passive aggression, and I tend to be more open. So, if you knew her, you'd see that in both of us. And she always thought that I didn't manage my anger appropriately. Because she thought she really managed her anger, which she didn't. She was just passive in her aggression. And, uh, and I knew that after probably about 10 years of that, that passive aggression would build up until she blew up and she would have left me. Uh, let's, let's go through this real quick and let me just make sure that you, you know which one. Because our, our natural sinful tendency in the mismanagement of our anger, we tend to fall into one of two categories. Do you tend to blow up or do you tend to clam up? So blowing up would be open aggression and clam up would be, would be more of that passive aggression. And uh, Okay, just to make sure that you, you know what it is, let me go through just a battery of questions here for you. So open aggression, that would be my team. Okay, not that I'm proud of that team, but that would be how I would mismanage anger. And so let's see if, and well, when we get to the end of this, I'll have you raise your hand. Some of you'll know just right from the very first question, you just go, yeah, that's me. And you can probably just keep your hand up the whole time. Okay, so I can be blunt and forceful when someone does something to frustrate me. Anybody? Okay, so we're, we're, we're already working here. You guys are on my team. Good to have you. Okay, as I speak my convictions, my voice becomes increasingly louder. In fact, I not only do that, I lean into you. Oh, yeah? You want to square off with me? It's that open aggression. When someone confronts me about a problem, I am likely to offer a ready rebuttal. Okay. Um, No one has to guess my opinion. I'm known for having unwavering viewpoints. Yeah. Some of you just need to put both hands up in the air right there. <laughs> Praise God. Okay, when something goes wrong, I focus so sharply on fixing the problem that I overlook others' feelings. I have a history of getting caught in bickering matches with family members. During verbal disagreements with someone, I tend to repeat myself several times. I find it hard to keep my thoughts to myself when it is obvious that someone else is wrong. Okay? I have a reputation for being strong-willed. I tend to give advice even when others have not asked for it. Okay, who would be on that team right there? Show of hands. Okay, cool. Right on. Okay, now for those of you that are passive aggression. When I am frustrated, I become silent knowing it bothers other people. Okay. I am prone to sulk and pout little self-pity party. When I don't want to do a project, I will procrastinate. I can be lazy. When someone asks if I am frustrated, I will lie and say, no, everything is fine. Okay? There are times when I am deliberately evasive so others won't bother me. 
I sometimes, some, some of you just kind of ignored me on that one right there, just trying to be, <laughs> just trying to be evasive, just like, yeah, uh, that's a bunch of garbage. There you go. When someone talks to me about my problems, I stare straight ahead, deliberately obstinate. I complain about people behind their backs, but resist the opportunity to be open with them face to face. Sometimes I become involved in behind the scenes misbehavior. I sometimes refuse to do someone a favor knowing this will irritate him or her. Show of hands, who's in that category? Who's on that team? Now, some of you didn't raise your hand. How many would put yourself on both teams? Oh, my goodness. You guys are really messed up. How many would find out? I mean, I'm right there with you. How many are like me that I would be passive aggressive on the job? I don't want to lose my job. But then I would stuff it, and then I'd come home and really, really be open in my aggression. How many more like that? So not only are we really messed up in mismanaging our anger, but we're also codependent. We're people pleasers. And so it's, it's, it's kind of messed up. And so, so can you admit and can you see when you're angry? That's what he does, reaction. Admit my anger. Admit my anger. Number two, reflection. Understand my anger. Notice what it says in verse 7. I took counsel with myself. That's interesting. I was angry. I took counsel with myself. I thought about this. I reflected on it. Why am I so angry? It says in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Anger is a God-given emotion or energy for the defense of something you love. For the defense of something that you love and seeking the destruction of something that is interfering or threatening what you love. If you love something a lot, when it is threatened, you will get angry a lot. I mean, you, you put all your money in that slick-looking car, and you told everybody, you, know, you don't drive it to the shopping mall because people swing out their door and ding it. But you had to, to drive it, and you did, and you get out there, and there's a ding on it. I come Because you love your car. I'm not saying that's appropriate anger, but I mean, and so here's how it works. Disordered anger comes from disordered loves. So here's your question you have to ask. What am I defending? What am I defending? So when you get angry, so when you're in touch with your anger, you're, you have to understand your anger. What am I defending and what am I seeking to destroy? So let me give you two examples, one of Jesus and one of me. <laughs> There's quite a difference between the two of us. He's still working on me. But, uh, but Jesus, when he got angry in the temple, John chapter 2 Remember that when he went in and turned over tables? That was no small thing. He went UFC on these dudes, you know? It's like, hey, I don't like what's going down. So what was he trying to defend? He said, my father's house is to be a house of prayers, to be a place where people connect with God. And you've turned it into, what is he trying to destroy? And you've turned it into what? Yeah. A den of thieves and robbers. You're ripping people off. You're not helping people to know God. So was that righteous indignation? Absolutely. So he was, he was defending his father's house. He was destroying anything that would 
make it anything that it shouldn't be. Pretty important. I was at Starbucks the other day with my wife. We were sitting down, had a coffee, hanging out, and there was a guy sitting right behind us. So I'm sitting here. He's like in the chair right behind me, kind of facing the back of my head, just really close. And he's on the phone talking to somebody, and then he gets really angry. And then there was a t- he just it gets really elevated. Whoa, yeah, Jesus Christ! That's what he says. It's like oh, just like ah, uh, why do you have to say that? Just it bothers me. Just really bothers me. And then he did it again, and my anger. <laughs> oh my goodness, my anger just like whoo, just flashed in a moment. I turned to him and go. Looked at him, he get, gets off his phone and says, yeah, what? Go, I worship him. That's what I said to him. And he goes, I do too. And then I responded, doesn't sound like it. And I turned and just sat there. He packed up his stuff and left. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and clean up the world you know, and I've worked around guys that use that in other language all the time. It's not our job to do that. They need to see Jesus. But this is what bothered me as I looked at my own anger. What was I trying to defend? I was, I was, I was just appalled and I was brokenhearted that this guy would throw the name that is above every name in heaven and earth around like it was just so profanely. I wanted to have further conversation with him. Say, man, do you have any idea what, what Jesus Christ did for you? He bled and died for you to reconcile you to the Father. And so I was broken, but I was angry, and I was like, come on. So I was trying to defend the most beautiful name on this planet and, and, and to destroy anybody that would profane that name. And I wanted him to understand that. Jesus died for me. That's why that's such a sacred name. There's no other name on heaven or earth by which we can be saved except through the name of Jesus. Oh, my goodness. You have any idea how powerful his name is? And we live in a society today that we throw that name around. Is it any wonder we have an enemy? I mean, why won't I, I've never heard anybody say, Oh, Allah. I've never heard anybody say that. Or, you know, oh, Joseph Smith. <laughs> never heard anybody say that. Or Muhammad. Never heard anybody say that. But Jesus Christ, because his name is so sacred, and the enemy wants to trample on his name. And so uh, I did work with a Mormon guy that would use the, the, when he would cuss, he'd go, oh, Judas Priest. It's like, okay, that's weird. Um, it's like, what is that about? Okay. And maybe that's a better name than, but probably shouldn't even do any of that. Probably just should just kind of work through your anger and deal with it. So, so that kind of uh, takes us to the next. Uh, so you've got you to ask yourself, what am I defending? What am I trying to destroy? And then reconciliation, channel your anger. And this is, he does a wonderful job here. He says, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So how do we do that? How do we channel our anger? Whether you are the offended or the offender, be the initiator by speaking the truth in love. And this is what we see in in this example of of Nehemiah. 
So whether you are the offender, if you know that you have offended somebody, it tells us in Matthew 5 to go make it right. If you've been offended, it says in Matthew 18 to go talk to them about that and you speak the truth in love. Let me read the text again, starting in uh, part of verse 7. Now notice how he responds. Verse 7, he says, And I said to them, you are exacting interest, so he's going to speak the truth in love. See if you don't see truth in love in this. So you are exacting interest each from his brother. He's saying, man, don't you guys see what you're doing? I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish, we have bought back our Jewish brothers. Man, we, we bought them out of slavery. We're bringing them back home. Don't you see? Don't you have vision? Oh my goodness. God is not about restricting us. He's about liberating us. It's about freedom. And we've brought them here and we're, we're bringing bondage to them, how we're treating them, our conflict that's going on here. He says, so we bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and, and could not find a word to say. I mean, when you, when you speak that kind of truth, it's just like, yeah, you're right. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Can you, see, can you hear the love? This is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Man, we're not living in the fear of God. We have this holy, righteous God that loves us. You're not living in the reality of this. Your conflict and the issues here are not consistent with living in harmony with God and being at peace with God. And so... One of the things about all healthy relationships, all healthy relationships are going to have mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. That's healthy relationships. Love without truth is deceptive. Truth without love is is too dogmatic. And so what you want to do is you don't want to, you don't want to blow up. That's to fight. You don't want to clam up. That's flight. So you, you have to avoid fighting or flight. But to face, he's facing the issue here. We've got to learn to face the issue. The Latin word for confront means to face. You said something that was very unkind to me, so I need to face that and come and talk to you about that. Um, It's never loving to let someone sin against you or let them sin against someone else. Any love that is afraid to confront is not love, but a kind of emotional hunger, a selfish desire to be loved. So when you're afraid to confront, it's because of your own emotional hunger, because you want to be loved and accepted, and you're going to undermine the relationship in the long run. How many are familiar with the, uh, the crazy cycle of the Love and Respect series? So the crazy cycle is that men need respect, women need love, but when my, li- my wife, and it took us a while to learn this, but m- when my wife was unloving to me, I'm sorry, disrespectful to me, I tended to be unloving to her. Oh, yeah? So it's kind of like, so this defensiveness from her would stir up defensiveness from me. So it creates this cycle. So then I'm, I'm unloving to her, then she's even more disrespectful to me, and then I'm more unloving to her. So it creates this cycle. And so at some point you've got to go, wait a minute. Wait a minute, when you see someone responding with defensiveness, you've got to say, and they didn't respond with defensiveness here, so he didn't have to do this. But you go, wait a minute, did I say something that was unloving? I'm so sorry. I noticed you kind of lashed out at me, and I'm just kind of wondering, did I say something or do something that was unloving? Because I don't want, I don't want you to feel unloved whatsoever. I don't want, to, want you to feel disconnected from me. So that's how you, you kind of get in there, and so you kind of work through that. And... Um, 
Let me give you some illustrations of what this might look like. So here's what I'm, what I'm wanting to teach you, and I think that you see this in the text. So you're wanting to confront someone, and the best way to do it is to say, hey, when you, when you do A, I've taught you this before, when you do A, I feel B. Is there any way that you could do C? Am I missing something in all of this? See how it's non-confrontational? So, so in essence, he came to them and said, hey, you guys are doing this. You're doing A. You're doing A. When you do A, I'm feeling B. We're not living in light of the fear of God. We're ripping off our brothers. Man, this is troubling to me. So we're ripping them off. This is how I'm feeling. This is inconsistent with the gospel. And hey, we need to give all their money back. Let's, let's, let's not do this anymore. So we're not a taunt to the nations. Can we do that? Am I missing something? That's really what he, he's doing here. Okay, a couple examples of that. Boundaries face-to-face. Henry Cloud, John Townsend is from that book. It's a great book on confrontation. So they, they talk about share your feelings, not your opinions, and stick to your experience. So here's not how to do it. See if you can see a distinction between it. Don't do it like this. When you negate my words, I feel like you don't care about me. In the, like I, I don't even want to say anything. That's, that's the wrong way to do it. Here's the right way. When you, negate, when you negate my words, I feel hurt and disconnected from you. You see the difference? It's just like, you, you, uh, here's another one. Avoid the statement, you make me feel. Nobody makes you feel any, anything. You decide to feel a certain way. And so he, he says, avoid, you make me feel. So here's the wrong way. You frustrate me when you're always late. That's the wrong way. Here's the right way. When you're constantly late, I feel frustrated and unimportant. So you've got to get to this deeper level of communication. If you're just giving opinions, so cliche conversation, facts, opinions. So you're moving into deeper relationship, feelings and needs. You've got to get to the feelings and needs. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm needing. When you do A, I feel B. Could you do C? Am I missing something? It's just as simple as that. That's what you, so you're dealing with feelings. You're dealing with this interaction. And as you're kind of working through So be specific. Here's, here's how you be specific. When you teased me last night at the dinner table because of my weight, I felt hurt. See, that's, that's being, being uh, specific in that. Now, I'm almost finished. We're almost done. So... Um, this is not about winning the argument, but being involved in the relationship and attacking the problem, not the person. Major difference. Now, before I move on to the next one, it only takes one to forgive. It only takes one to forgive. It has to do with the past, past hurt. It takes two to reconcile. You can only take care of your side of the street. Some people, you'll never be able to reconcile with them, but you can take care of your side of the street. You can't force reconciliation. But you also need to keep this in mind. There's a difference between forgiveness, reconciliation, and then trust. And, and some people, you won't ever be able to trust because they, don't, they won't, over time, earn that trust. Uh, trust has to be earned over time based on performance. It can't be demanded. So when someone has violated your trust, you know, you can reconcile, but you might not trust them. And so you could still keep them at a distance and, and let them know about that. You can still forgive them, or you might not ever be able to reconcile with them because they don't want to. There's nothing you can do about that. And so, so you got reaction, admit my anger, reflection, understand my anger. What am I defending? What am I trying to destroy? Reconciliation, channel your anger. And then here's number four, resolution. Give 
forgive and live for God's glory. That's really how it ends right there, verses uh, 10 through 13. That's what we see. I mean, these guys are given, they're saying, okay, we're not going to have uh, charge high taxes. We're going to give them their land back. Uh, there's no reason why we should be living in poverty here. We should have a lot of unity and harmony. And so why should we do this? It's based on the fear of the Lord. And you might think the fear of the Lord, ooh, that's being afraid of God. No, 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 it's much more. It's much deeper. It's much richer. I did a word study on the fear of the Lord, and I gave you that in Psalm 211. The fear of the Lord is involved with rejoicing. In Psalm 34, 8 through 9, the fear of the Lord is about contentment. In Psalm 130, verse 4, it's about forgiveness. In Proverbs 1, 7, it's the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. And then in, in Proverbs 2, 1 through 5, it's, you, you see this magnificent obsession with the heavenly treasure. So I think I've got it on your notes. So this is what this means. To walk in the fear of God is a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us that frees us from our self-centeredness so that we can serve others unselfishly. That's the bottom line. So if I don't have it, if I don't even want to reconcile with people this way, it's because I really don't have a clue of the magnitude of how, what Christ has done to reconcile me to the Father. Do you have any idea what the Son of God did on that cross for you to bring you into the family. And don't you understand that your sin against a holy, righteous God far exceeds any sin that anyone will ever commit against you? So, so if you're struggling horizontally, you got to come back to the cross. You got to come back to Jesus. You got to begin to see what he did for you and allow that to, to so captivate your heart that when you understand, I'm reconciled. I have a relationship with the God of the galaxies. He bled and died for me. Then you will be a person of reconciliation. See, people that have been forgiven, he's forgiven you, by the way. I mean, he has. He will never hold your sin against you. Never, ever. No condemnation. And so people that live in the reality of that, people that are forgiven will be forgiving people. So that's, that's how it works in our life. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Let me uh, pray. It's one of the texts it's, uh, that I had on your notes, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. So, so it's, coming, it's coming back to the cross. It's understanding what we, have, what we have in him. Oh my goodness, it is amazing. So if you're struggling this way, you know, it's not, not going to work trying harder. You come back to him. You come face to face with your Savior who bled and died for you. And allow him to fill up your heart and redeem your life even more so, so that then you can be a channel of reconciliation and forgiveness. And this is what the writer here says. He says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he ends right here in this chapter. He says, for, for our sake, he 
made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So because we stand in right relationship with God, then we, can, we will work towards right relationship with others. So God, may this be true about us here at Desert Breeze. And God, I pray this morning that you would heal the hearts of those that, that have harbored bitterness deep in their heart from past hurts. Lord, bring freedom to their lives this morning, today, as they walk through the principles that we've learned from your holy word. God, you have reconciled us through your son to yourself. And so may we be people of reconciliation. May we understand our forgiveness in you so that we can offer forgiveness to others. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.